was a joy uh, for me to be with the uh, family of City of Hope. Uh, and I have been so encouraged uh, by the testimony of your perseverance and your vitality in the midst of many challenges that you have uh, been facing. I, I have the honor of also serving with Pastor Stan uh, Long, who was here last week uh, as we uh, helped lead together BALM, Baltimore Antioch Leadership Movement. And, uh, and along with that, I understand that you've had Bill, uh, Roy Nelber, Bill Cianella uh, assist in some of the preaching and officer training. Bill serves uh, BALM as our president of, the, uh, of our board. Uh, and so uh, it's, uh, it's been good to, to, uh, to serve along with these brothers and also to be part of what God's doing here with City of Hope. Uh, I understand that uh, many of the seminary students from Metro Baltimore Seminary are uh, been part of filling the pulpits and will be filling the pulpits, uh, pulpit here in the future. And uh, I have the uh, privilege also of serving as the, uh, as the Dean of Church Planting and Renewal for the seminary. So I get to see uh, the development of leaders that God is raising up in our midst. And uh, it's a joy that they have the opportunity to be part of serving here. So um, you should know, by the way, that you are not alone as a church uh, in the process of seeking their next pastor. Uh, there are actually five churches uh, presently in our presbytery who are in pastoral transition. Uh, the one that we are serving in the city, Abbott, uh, Grace Relay, which our pastor Stan's been serving, Evangelical of uh, Annapolis, uh, Columbia Presbyterian Church uh, recently. Uh, and so uh, you should know that, that you're not alone and that elders, actually, I'm, I'm in a group of other uh, elders, ruling and teaching elders that meet weekly uh, for prayer. And uh, we've been praying for, for City of Hope. So you should know that you're, you're not alone in this journey. Um, and I, I believe that in such times like pastoral transitions, uh, we're reminded of who the great shepherd of the sheep is, who is actually carrying us through all of these things. And I, I, I'm reminded of Isaiah 40, 11, where it, about the Lord says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Uh, we have many young <laughs> in the uh, family here of City of Hope. And it's wonderful to know that we have such a shepherd who, who takes and carries us uh, in his arms. And so City of Hope, you are being carried well, not only by your good shepherds here uh, among you, but also by your Lord. Uh, but also you are applying your faith well. I appreciate the, uh, the website that you have, the words of welcome or of uh, the nature of your church that says, Jesus once said, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Uh, and, and you say, with the power, grace, patience, and spirit of Jesus Christ, we are a diverse group of people seeking to love each other well. And you know that welcome that you have on your website is... Uh, is declaring that you are a faith community, not only declaring in word, but demonstrating by your loving fellowship uh, that Jesus is true uh, and he's real. And you are inviting others. You're inviting skeptics, 
and seekers uh, and people far from God to join you in this, uh, uh, this journey of disciple-making that you have. Uh, and in this, you have anchored yourself squarely in the mission of God. And I'd like to talk to you about that mission today. You know, our God is a missionary God. Uh, he's on mission, and he calls all believers, not just leaders, uh, to be on mission with him, uh, to reach the nations and to make disciples of all peoples, to build his church that he might have for himself a glorious bride uh, among all the nations and the peoples and the tongues around the world. And so the book of Acts, and that's the, the book that we'll be looking at and the passage we'll be looking at today from Acts 8, uh, is this unfolding missionary movement of God. Uh, the book of Acts shows us how God moved a small band of unimportant, unknown, uneducated people from a backwaters part of the Roman Empire uh, who somehow developed the momentum and the force to become the dominant faith in the empire in just 300 years, reaching into the life, even into the life of, Rome, of the emperor Constantine himself. You know, beginning with 120 disciples, they are praying in the upper room, uh, they became the dominant uh, faith. Uh, over 34 million people, or 57% of the population by 350 AD. And the question I'd like us to explore as we look at this passage is, what can explain the rise of this faith movement that you and I are now part of? Uh, in the early part of Acts, we see uh, that there is a commitment to prayer, uh, relying on the Holy Spirit in the upper room. And, and by the way, I'm really encouraged that you have a weekly prayer time as a church. You gather, I believe, on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. You know, that is so vital. It's so foundational to the health of any, any church. Uh, and we see this commitment to prayer in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, we saw the Holy Spirit descending, filling, and empowering the apostles to boldly proclaim the good news of the resurrected Christ. And in that proclamation, we... We found that 3,000 uh, gave their lives to Christ and were baptized into the Jerusalem church uh, at that time. Uh, and then we see these Christ followers growing in a community of faith, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, which you also are doing. The first conflict in the book of Acts is, happens actually in Acts chapter 6. Uh, where there's injustice corrected. The Grecian-speaking widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution, and it stopped the whole gospel movement of the church, but they corrected it, and uh, then we see the church expanding continually. Uh, we consider that the place of the ordination of the first deacons, uh, the mercy and justice ministers. But in Acts 7, uh, we see the courage of one of those first deacons, Stephen, uh, who was martyred for his faith. And all of this happened in Jerusalem. And so the first seven chapters of Acts all happens and are, is concentrated, are concentrated in Jerusalem. And the question, again, I'd like us to consider today, what was the catalyst? What was the character that drove the church uh, from being this small, localized Jewish Christian community anchored in Jerusalem to being a global 
international movement around the world. Uh, we heard the passage read from Acts chapter 8, the first eight verses, but let me just uh, repeat the last four verses of that chapter. If you would please stand with me as we read the word of God. Verse 4 through 8, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, the psalmist in wonder asks, What is man that you are mindful of him? And how is it that you crowned him with glory and honor? You think about us. You think about your flock all the time. You crown us with glory and honor. We are indeed amazed that we, unworthy sinners, have been lifted up to the heights of heaven by your love, by your Son, by your Spirit. Would you remind us now of these realities? Would you convict where we need correction, encourage where we need courage and strength? And would you clarify where we are confused that we might be renewed and revived and reignited in your grace and in your love here at City of Hope? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, many of us, many of us struggle with being faithful witnesses for Jesus where we live, learn, work, and play. Uh, there was a pastor, uh, Jack Miller, uh, author, professor, he wrote a book called Powerful Evangelism, and this is what he said. When I first became a Christian, I was a poor beggar telling other poor beggars where to find bread. Gradually, though, I became an ex-beggar telling poor beggars to find bread. He said, in our heart of hearts, we all long to be ex-beggars, self-sufficient, capable human beings straightening out other people from above. But he said, grace doesn't work that way. It falls on the fallen, the needy, the broken, and the guilty. We have it most abundantly when we raise crippled, bleeding hands to heaven, crying out for help that we, we know we cannot provide for ourselves. And so as we turn to our text and the context of the early church, a question arises as to, you know, what was the apostles' strategy for a worldwide expansion of the gospel? What were the goals or the, the systematic objectives that they were systematically executing as they, to measure their progress? What do you see? You see none. <laughs> you see no strategy of, that the apostles had there. We aren't given any. The scriptures tell us that while the church was scattered throughout the region, the apostles remained in Jerusalem. Uh, and, uh, you know, all the other believers were scattered and, except the apostles. Now, Luke doesn't suggest that the apostles were somehow being disobedient for remaining in Jerusalem and fact, we might say, well, they were practicing courage because that was, that's where the center of persecution was. Yet Jesus did make explicit, did he not, that he was calling them to spread the good news from Jerusalem to Judea 
to Samaria, to the ends of the earth in the first chapter. And so while they were not moving, God was moving. And here we see how God is executing his strategy to take good news beyond Jerusalem. And we see this unfolding kingdom strategy, and we see God's relentless gospel mission, and we see that nothing can stop it, that everyone can join it, and that great joy flows from it. And Acts 8 uh, shows us this missional catalyst. It shows us the missional character, and it shows us the missional impact of God's relentless gospel mission. Nothing can stop it. And here we see this in verse 1 through 4, that God uses persecution to propel the church outward in mission. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. In verse 4, and those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. It doesn't say that those who were scattered went into hiding, (laughs) you know, uh, that they stopped speaking. But no, it says that they preached the word wherever they went. Uh, And so we see this movement. We see this movement, even though in the first eight chapters or the first seven chapters, there was no movement uh, outside of Jerusalem. They didn't go to Judea. They didn't go to Samaria or the other parts of the world. At this point, up until this point, there was no vision. Uh, There wasn't any movement to break out over the barriers, uh, no great plans to form a great missionary movement uh, from Jerusalem. There was no evidence that people were even sensing the need to cross barriers to start preaching the Gospels to other cultures. Uh, Dick Lucas, uh, he's a pastor of St. Helens, he said this, what was not done because of the slowness of the Christians was achieved by the bitter opposition of God's enemies. And it throws light on the wisdom and the extraordinary power of our almighty God. It is not simply that God uses friends and their efforts to advance his kingdom. It is just as easy for God to use his enemies. Nothing can alter God's purposes, and often he uses the works of Satan to accomplish them. This is from Dick Lucas. God can grow his church in times of peace, as we find in Acts chapter 9, but God can equally grow his times in the midst of persecution. God is not limited. And so we see in verse 2 and 3 that Saul, you know, who became Paul, had been the pr- primary approver of the execution of Stephen. And he was, it says that uh, Paul, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house to house. Uh, he, and that word ravage means brutal and sadistic cruelty. He didn't spare women or children. He went seeking and securing his victim's death. Ajith uh, Fernando uh, is a... Uh, uh, director of Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka. He wrote uh, the commentary, uh, NIV application commentary on Acts. And and he said this, he said, Luke is not reluctant to describe the pre-Christian vehemence of his latter friend Paul. He said, I live in a land of turmoil, and I am often concerned of what our children might think 
about our decision to stay, stay and serve an evangelistic organization here. Thus, I have naturally wondered what those Christian children would have felt like as they fled their homes in fear or saw their parents dragged off to prison. What has happened to the victorious Christ and the power of his resurrection? Why does God remain inactive, even dormant, while they suffer? And G. Fernando says, Acts keeps unfolding its deep theology on the sub-theme of suffering as the book proceeds. God is not dormant. He feels the pain Saul inflicts. Luke gives us a glimpse of the victory God is going to win out of the seeming tragedy. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so what we see here is that the church uh, revealed its missionary spirit. Uh, And to have that kind of missionary spirit, a church needs to have a theology of suffering has to recognize that that is part of our call, of taking up our crosses uh, as we focus on our Lord of the cross. But one writer uh, also said, the exalted Christ sharing in the glory of God is not deaf to our cries of pain as we suffer. He himself suffers with us when we suffer, when his people suffer. Paul came to understand this on the road to Damascus uh, when he heard Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul had been hitting the church, but Christ had been feeling the pain. Thus, in our times of suffering, we can affirm by faith, this is going to bring me close to Jesus, therefore it's a blessing. So you need to recognize that whatever, you, whatever pain uh, that you feel in the midst of your seeking faithful obedience to Christ, he feels it. He feels the hits that you're feeling. Uh, So the people we find here in Acts 8 went about as missionaries more than refugees. Uh, And Luke could have used the term for scattering uh, a different term, but he chose the word uh, diaspora, which means to scatter as seed. And so the gospel seed is being scattered in the midst of their persecution. God uses persecution and suffering to advance uh, the gospel. John Calvin said this. He says, God's normal way of bringing light out of darkness and life out of death, we must discipline ourselves to bravery. And he's talking about the, in the midst of the dispersion uh, that, God, that God was scattering the gospel seed. Apologist Sotilian in the 160 North African Christian addressing the Roman Empire said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to the dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. Uh, and you know, John Stott said this about this. What is, the, what is plain is that the devil who lurks behind all the persecution of the church overreached himself. His attack had the opposite effect to what he intended. Instead of smothering the gospel, persecution succeeded only in spreading it. The wind increases the flame. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, it's instructive for us to think about the growth of the church in China uh, when it was under persecution. 1949, in China, when the national government was defeated by the communists, Uh, 637 
China inland missionaries had to flee uh, and were obliged to leave mainland China. Uh, and it seemed like a total disaster, yet within four years, 286 of those missionaries had been redeployed in Southeast Asia and Japan, while the national Christians in China continued to grow and multiply under severe persecution. Uh, now, total 30 or 40 times the number uh, that existed when the missionaries were there. Uh, is it presently estimated, by the way, that there are 97 million believers in China, and they are growing so quickly, it is estimated that they'll reach 300 million by 2030. That was by Dr. Roy Boyd McMillan. Uh, he believes that the rapid growth of the church in China is why the Chinese government party is targeting believers so aggressively. So we've been hearing reports of persecution. But what we need to realize is that God is using this persecution, even this persecution, as a means to expand uh, his church and his kingdom. Uh, it's been said by missiologists that in America we are no longer living in a post-Christian era uh, where Christianity uh, is no longer considered the dominant faith. Uh, it's been said that we are now living in an anti-Christian era where more and more uh, who are acknowledging or claiming to be Christians are not, is not considered a positive thing. But the remarkable thing is that God uh, is not dormant, uh, God is not uh, passive, uh, that God is using this persecution and other ways to uh, expand and advance his relentless gospel mission. But secondly, not only uh, it, that nothing can stop it, also, we see that everyone can join it. Every believer is part of this gospel mission expansion. In verse 1, it says they were scattered. All the believers were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Note, the apostles did not lead this missional charge. Uh, it was the everyday ordinary believers who became the everyday missionaries. It was the normal people who were the evangelists, the gossip, who gossiped the gospel. Uh, and so, um, you know, as you think about, and I think about City of Hope, uh, what's been revealed in your season as you have been without a pastor is that you have determined to be faithful to following Jesus on mission. Uh, you've been faithfully gathering together for worship. You've been gathering in small groups. You've been gathering for prayer. Uh, you're continuing to provide encouragements to reach others far from God or in other languages through ESL. Uh, it is a wonderful thing to see that God is continuing to grow and shepherd uh, this flock in the midst of this time. Uh, but this is who God uses. God is not limited by just having, quote, ordained leaders. <laughs> uh, he's not limited by having those who have gone through all of the seminary training, even though he does use pastors, and we want to encourage the development of such leaders. But he uses each one of his faithful believers. 
and uh, that is the, what we see. Uh, some people call this uh, uh, that he uses fat Christians, you know, faithful, available, teachable. <laughs> uh, and so Philip was one of those ordinary believers. He became this deacon. And you know, when you think about Acts, it was a deacon that became the first church planner. It was the deacon that became the first cross-cultural first, uh, first church planter in Acts. And so we see this character of this relentless gospel mission. And, you know, when you think about um, the movement of Philip uh, to Samaria, it was a pretty radical movement. Uh, you may recall that the Jews historically had absolutely no dealings with the Samaritans, uh, who they considered them spiritually and morally uh, polluted and unclean. They were considered part of this lost sheep of the house of Israel. For over a thousand years of hostility uh, had existed between the Samaritans and the, uh, and the North, when the northern ten tribes of Israel were defected. And, it became, and Samaria became this religious and political capital. Uh, the Assyrians captured the city. Uh, deported the tribes, and the Samaritans, were, who were former Jews, then intermarried with other forbidden races, and they set up a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, which sealed the animosity of the Jews against the Samaritans, and that created this hatred. Uh, the Samaritans only embraced the first five books of the Masoretic uh, Scriptures, uh, you know, the first five books of Moses. Uh, they, didn't, uh, they didn't embrace uh, Joshua and Judges, Psalms, and the prophets. Uh, they only, and uh, so this animosity uh, between the Jews and the Samaritans is pretty similar between Jews and Muslims today. Uh, and so we see that Philip going to Samaria was a radical move, but it was totally consistent with God's kingdom strategy that, that, uh, that Jesus himself had presented when he moved uh, into, uh, uh, for that period of time, uh, Samaritan, uh, Samaria, when he met the Samaritan woman. And the whole village came out, uh, you know, because Jesus uh, basically revealed everything about her. Uh, and so we see that, that Jesus gave this commission, and he specifically says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. When Jesus says Samaria, that is a really radical movement of gospel grace to uh, people who were formerly far from God and enemies. And so we see this character. But in this character, we see the manifestation of good news in word and deed. Word and deed. And so when they heard him, that when they heard Philip, and they saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. When they saw that, uh, there was a gospel transformation. Uh, you know, the gospel is something that is declared and something that's demonstrated. It is something that you tell, but it's something that you show. Uh, the gospel is holistic. Uh, to preach the good news is to bring good tidings in this you know, Jesus opens up in Luke chapter 4, you know, good news to the poor, uh, to proclaim freedom for the captives. Uh, and John Calvin said the whole substance of the gospel is comprehended in Christ, that Christ restores a ruined world by his grace 
And that happens when he re- reconciles us to the Father and when, he re- and when he regenerates us by his spirit and Satan has been put to flight and the kingdom of God is set up. And so the gospel comes holy uh, to restore all things. And we see these signs of the kingdom, these, these moments where the kingdom is manifested uh, through this. And so, uh, and so, and by the way, I'm actually encouraged. I know that you presently have one deacon, I mean one elder, one ruling elder presently on, on site. I understand that Tom Miller has, you've sent him into the mission field, which is a, a wonderful gift uh, to do. Uh, and uh, Ron, Ron, your elder Ronnie has been serving so faithfully over all of these years. But, but I understand that there's, you have a good group of deacons. You have a couple deacons and you have four de- diaconal assistants. Wow, uh, how important that is. Uh, you are providing a framework uh, to reveal uh, the whole gospel uh, to the whole person. And so I just encourage you in that. You know, uh, we need right now a gospel that is clearly demonstrated besides being clearly declared. Uh, that is so critical for the church today because a lot of the world that we live in does, is not listening. They're not listening to our words. But when they see the deeds of the gospel, it changes things. Um, they presently say that 60% of the population of America won't go into the normal Sunday event churches. Uh, where will they go? Because we find that they are, they, they, they're called the nuns and the duns. They're, they're, they're done with the normal organized church. Uh, but they are spiritually curious. Uh, they still are spiritually interested. Where will they go? Well, they'll go to your living room. They'll go to your kitchens. Uh, they'll go to you know a coffee shop and they'll have spiritual conversations with you your small groups by the way are so important to create a place for a welcome where people can be understood and listened to and enter into their stories so i just encourage you to continue to nurture that one of the things that uh, we're doing uh, with balm is exploring uh really the first century church model of uh, micro churches or house church kind of movements, which is kind of an unusual thing, but it's not much different from small groups, except it's really encouraging the multiplication of disciple making through a micro church complex. And then we have uh, about uh, 10 students right now with spouses that are interested in this particular model. They're bivocational, co-vocational leaders. Uh, so we're doing that. And the other part that we're doing is we're walking alongside of existing churches like Abbott or Grace Relay, uh, trying to encourage uh, disciple-making through the cell groups, the small groups uh, within churches, because we know that those are key places uh, where people can connect relationally with with neighbors and and people in the workplace uh, to be able to uh, create relational space where the gospel can be demonstrated. So... I just uh, encourage you in that. And so what is the, uh, wh- what is the fruit of all of this? Uh, that the, the, the gospel, the relentless gospel cannot be stopped, that, that everyone can join it. Well, the missional impact is joy. And so in verse 8, it says, so there was much joy in that city. Much joy. I mean, the whole city kind of like, like was 
throbbing with this sense that the kingdom of God had come among them and people were being healed and touched and lives were being changed. And so uh, we see this kind of joy. And of course, joy is, uh, it's been called uh, a continuous defiance of the neverless hope of Christ that is not based upon circumstances, but it is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of life. And, uh, and we, need, we need to know that that joy exists regardless of circumstances because there are so many that can be discouraging. Uh, and so as we come to, uh, to this uh, point in, the, in our service, uh, we come to recognize that Christ is in the midst of his church, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of all of the hits, all the transitions, and he is at work within his people. He is at work in your life. Do you know how precious you are in this gospel advancement? Uh, you are not alone. You have a great shepherd that is with you, and he is using uh, even these moments of loss as a means to grow you and to grow his church. And so as we come to uh, this time in our service, we want to uh, just come with humble confession. You know, what is God speaking into your heart right now? What, is, what has the Lord, through his spirit, speaking to you through his word? And I, I just take a moment uh, just to quiet our hearts as we uh, move towards the Lord's Supper uh, to, to, to contemplate and, uh, and to ask that, God, that his spirit would reinforce to you that. And then we're going to uh, confess our sins to one another as we move towards the table. Let's just take a moment of pause as we as we consider what God is saying to us.